to deal with uh, the pre uh, the pre-salvation time of the Ephesians, reminding them of what they were like before. I, I told you last week, we talked about that, how they were getting everybody ready. Uh, Paul is trying to get Jew and Gentile alike that are saved in that body to understand what it's like to be together. And we, we've kind of talked about that a few a few times, but, you know, Paul is, he's going to explain them. The, theologically, really, is what he's doing. He's explaining the difference here. He's explaining uh, Jew and Gentile what they what the Gentiles were before. He he called them Gentiles in the flesh. He called them the uncircumcision. And now he's going to describe them as without Christ, no hope, and without God. And uh, that really sums up the lost life, doesn't it? Uh, without Christ, no hope, and without God. That's that's uh, what it means to be lost. Ephesians two twelve says that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Father, Lord, we pray you bless us as we look at these scriptures here tonight, this one in particular, verse 12. Help us, Lord, uh, as we break it down and, and think and meditate upon it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, this is all the world without Christ, without God, and no hope. All men, whether Jew or Gentile, bond or free, are under this category. This is the natural place of all men. But he's describing the Gentiles in the flesh as this. He says, number one, we were aliens and strangers. He says they were strangers of the covenants and alien to the commonwealth, right, of Israel. That they, they, they are not, that they are not the same as Israel is very clear. That they were not the same is very clear. They were Gentiles in the flesh, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Gentiles are not part of Israel. God's people, uh, Old Testament people there, his chosen people that he had chosen uh, to come out of Egypt and it, it, that he had chosen in Abraham. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. Psalm 135, verse 4. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 through 9. This all describes who Israel is as opposed to who the Gentiles were and are at that, at that time and still today. Romans chapter 9, verse 4 to 5. Who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers, and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. This is describing how Jesus came through the 12 tribes of Israel. He came through Abraham. He came through Isaac, right? He came according to the promise. He came through, uh, all the way down through uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, through the, through the lineage of David. To have the rightful, to be the rightful king of Israel. Amen. But the Bible, so the Bible describes who the Gentiles were, 
right? Who they were and who the nation of Israel is and the people of Israel, who they were. Strangers from the covenants of promise, he says. Before the gospel and, and, and even those that are lost, they are strangers. But at this time, Paul is, he's showing the difference here in the two. He's saying uh, the Gentiles, they were strangers from the covenants of promise. They had no promises given to them. There were no promises directly given to them. There was no covenant made with the Gentiles. There was a covenant made with the Jews. More than one covenant that was made with them. You know, we talk about the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, and all these other covenants that were made uh, with, with Israel. Those covenants, those specific covenants, Abraham, uh, Mose Moses, and all those others that took place could all be summed up in the Old Testament in that sense. But that's who they were. But we were strangers from God's covenants with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. We, didn't, we, we weren't a part of that. We were strangers from God's covenant pertaining to the land of Israel. Turn to Genesis chapter 17. And if you think that battle's over with, you've got another thing coming. That battle for that land is not over. In fact, you're seeing it right now. You're seeing it. You're seeing the battle for it right now uh, play out. All of it was done on purpose, too, the way that it was designed. To put, those, to put those fake people called the Palestinians. Now, the people are real, but they're not Palestinians. <laughs> There's no such thing as a, Pal a Palestinian. There's, that's, that's made up. That's an invention. That's a UN invention. It's an Antichrist invention. It's a Jesuit invention. They made it up. There's no such thing as a Palestine people. There's, that's, just, that's, a, that's a figment of someone's imagination that they made up and said, oh, I think I'll put, I think I'll put Palestine and those people, I think I'll put them right here on the border in Gaza right there. I think I'll put them right there. Well, who owns the Gaza Strip? Well, God does. That's who owns it. But, but, but he gave it to the Jews and it belongs to them. Look it up in your Bible. You can see it. What are the borders of Israel? Not what's there now. See, here's the thing that's really hard to take and understand for a lot of people. If the Jews did decide to blow up that rock of the dome, they wouldn't be violating anything. It's already theirs. They already own it. Why? Because God gave it to them. It's the only land in the world where God actually gave it to them. You understand that, right? That's what differentiates it from like, we live in America here and, and, and conquered this land and settled it and did all kinds of other things to it. That's not what happened there. God ordained that to happen there. You understand the difference there? I'm not, I'm not advocating violence for them to do violent things to those people over there. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying, it's going to happen. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. It, just, it's going to happen. That, that was purposely put there in that Gaza Strip. Those terrorists and those people were purposely put there on purpose. Some innocent people that have nothing to do with anything. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, they're not at fault. But the UN, the British government, all these people put them there on that border. And they did that on purpose. Because they want that to be a ticking time bomb that blows. Now God allowed it to happen. Why? Because it's going to come down to the end times eventually. Those, those final days of when... Israel is going to expand, and that's going to happen. 
It's all for a reason. It's all for a purpose. You're seeing it played out right now. People just want to ignore their Bible and act like it ain't there. Oh, it's there. This whole thing right here. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee and their generations. That's right there in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7 through 9. It's going to get real ugly, though. Psalm 89. But that is not us. We are not Israel. We have no promise of the land. We have an inheritance in heavenly Jerusalem that'll come down from heaven, that's going to come down from heaven, that God promised. That's where our inheritance is. Amen. We have our inheritance is a heavenly Jerusalem that's going to come down, right? Psalm 89, verse 3 through 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Selah. I think he means that. I think you're going to see, I think you're going to see those, 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 um, land covenants. You're, you're going to see things play out with those. So the whole battle is over that, over there. That's what the whole battle is over. The whole fight, the whole war over there. That's why it's not about us. I'm not going over there to fight. I don't need, God don't need my help to take that land. God don't need my help to shoot people over there. God don't need me to go over there and do that. I'm, if I go over there, it'd be to preach the gospel to them. I ain't going over there with no gun in my hand. I'm going over there with the Bible in my hand. They need Jesus. They're going to die and go to hell. All of them, Jew and Gentile alike. That's right. Right? So they, what do they need? They need the gospel. They don't need Bible preachers going over there signing, signing big bombs like Jim Vineyard did to Hamas with love or whatever from o o Oklahoma Baptist College <laughs> signing the missile over there. Yeah, okay, that's just exactly the message that the church is supposed to give to, the, uh, to a bunch of heathens, right? Tell them we're going to kill them. Well, that's what heathens already do is kill people. That ain't what we're supposed to be doing. That ain't the church's duty. Yeah. See, that's what happens when you get all messed up, though. Yeah. You, you start, you, you, yeah, that's not Baptist, though, it isn't. <laughs> no, it isn't. It's George Bush Baptist is what it is. Yeah. But we were strangers from the new covenant promised to Israel as well. Jeremiah chapter 31. Verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, let me tell you something about that. That is a picture of what you and I have. I believe it's a literal promise to those people as well. To come, not now, but to come. If they get saved now, they get saved the good old-fashioned gospel way, amen. 
uh, by repentance and faith in Christ alone, which is essentially what this is being said here, because God does write that in your heart. Amen? When he, he puts that into your heart. And once it's there, it's there. That's what makes it different than a blood sacrifice that was given in the Old Testament. You have the Holy Spirit that seals you under the day of redemption. You have that truth written in the inward parts of you as a believer in Christ. Like, we don't, we don't lose that truth that doesn't go away from us, right? It's not connected to any other sacrifices beside the atonement that was made by Christ Jesus. But it is written on our hearts. It is there. But I believe that he has a promise to his people that will come there, those people, um, the lineage of them. And there'll be a war for that. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sin no more. Amen. You and I, God does that for us, doesn't he? He forgave our sins and he remembers our iniquity no more. God doesn't bring up your past sins to you. You bring up your past sins to you. God don't do that. Satan might throw up your past sins to you. God don't throw up your past sins to you. God doesn't do that. God doesn't torture you with things you did wrong years ago or sins that you committed. That's you that does that. That's your conscience that might do that because it's broken in some ways. And that's the devil that does that. That ain't God that does that. God's already forgiven that. By the way, when you bring up sins and ask God to forgive you again for sins, God doesn't even pay attention to that. Why would he? See, the Holy Spirit intercedes for those prayers. They don't even make it there. Why? Well, they're not biblically correct. God's not going to listen to that. Why would he? Why, why would he hear something that he's already done? He's already forgiven it. Why would, he, why would he enter? God doesn't have to forgive that again. God forgives and it's over. He doesn't bring that up and throw that up to you. That's not who does that. If you, have a, if you have an attack like that in your mind and your heart like that, and you keep thinking, well, God must be punishing me for something I did. No, God don't do that. God deals with his own children. He chastens them. He corrects them. They, they, they repent, and he restores them, and then that's it. God didn't go back and throw up to David every, uh, the, the sin he had with Bathsheba constantly, did he? No, he said... He told him, I'm going to put away your sin. You shall not die. He said, I'm going to put away your sin. I'm going to put it away from you. So who keeps bringing it up then? So you better think theological. You, you better think biblically correct. You want to get yourself messed up. You, 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 you think... Uh, outside of the scriptures and you start thinking with your emotions and your feelings and, and running with that and you'll believe things that are contrary to God's word. That isn't how God works. Don't accuse God of working the way man does. God doesn't hold a grudge against his children. Like, man, I'm waiting just to use this against them. That's not who God is. Don't you ever represent God to me like that. When I counsel you and I try to help you, I mean it. I'm dead serious. Don't you come to me with that garbage. I will correct you very sternly with that. Don't you tell me God does that. You're telling me something that's contrary to God's word. God puts away your sin. Don't you tell me he's, he brings it back up to you all the time and throws that up to you. That ain't God. Well, maybe God's punished me for what I did all this time ago. Well, that's not consistent. Show me in the Bible where God's doing that. I didn't say how you feel about it. Show me what God's word says. And you won't find that anywhere that God does that to his children. 
By the way, you and I shouldn't do it to ours either. Once they ask forgiveness for something, we move on. We don't throw it up to them. And we don't do it to each other either. You act like God. When, 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 when God forgives, when someone repents, then you put it away. It's done. We ain't going to throw that up to each other. We're not going to throw past sins and mistakes and everything else and judge people by those things. No. We don't do that. Nope, that's over. They ask for forgiveness. God forgive them. I forgive them. It's over. We move on. Amen. That's, that, uh, let Satan get an advantage over you. Right? For we are not ignorant of his devices. Satan will use that. He'll use it in your mind to stumble you and to keep you from growing because you're always thinking God's dealing, talking to you about sin that you committed years ago after you already asked forgiveness for it. No, that's not theologically correct. Now, see, that was free. I wasn't planning on preaching that long about that, but we all need to hear that sometimes, don't we? We need to be reminded of God's goodness. We need to be reminded of his mercy, that his mercy endureth forever. That God never wears out in forgiving his saints. Amen. God's never tired of forgiving you. You understand that? He doesn't grow weary of forgiving you. God doesn't grow weary in well-doing. He warns us not to grow weary in well-doing, but God doesn't grow weary in well-doing. The Bible says that his hand is stretched out still. His arm is stretched out still, right? He is always ready to forgive his children. He is always ready to, to bring, pour forth his mercy upon them. Always. God is a God of reconciliation. He always wants to reconcile. That's why when we go out and preach, we don't just preach damnation that they are under. We preach to them that God is ready to forgive your sins. We don't go, I don't go out there and, and preach condemnation to people only and the, that the laws condemn them. We preach that, yes, we warn them. You are already condemned because you have not believed on the only begotten Son of God. But if you'll repent, He will forgive you. He will reconcile you. He will bring you home. God delights in bringing His children home. Amen. He delights in having His children gathered around His table. You understand that? Just like you would when you would want so bad for your children to get right and to repent and to do right. So if, you were, if they were at odds with you that you could bring them home, that they could be gathered around your table, right? Wouldn't you? If any of your children, if they were wrong with you and they came to you and they asked for forgiveness, would you not forgive them? Of course you would. Because you've received forgiveness, you can forgive them. That's why you and I can forgive people when they come to us and ask for right. it. Because we've been forgiven of so much. <laughs> we just can't hold on to it. Well, it's like, man, how can I? God forgave me. <laughs> Amen. Strangers from the covenants of promise, having no part in the promise of the covenant made with Abraham, whether considered as relating to his natural or his spiritual seed, and no part in that of the covenant made at Horeb, with the Israelites when a holy law was given them and God condescended to dwell among them and to lead them to the promised land. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, both from their civil and church state. He, he's talking, this is John Gill talking about the, the Old Testament. He, they called it the Old Testament church. That's what they called it, right? They get that from the picture of 1 Corinthians. And it talks about they were all assembled together and 
we would describe that as a church today, wouldn't we, in the New Testament? So he just, they described that as the Old Testament. Uh, they, would, they would use that, that terminology there. The, the Gentiles might not dwell among them, nor have any dealings with them. You listen to this. This is how it was. This is how uh, Jewish law was. Now listen very closely. The Gentiles might not dwell among them, nor have any dealings with them in things civil, unless they conform to certain laws. Nor might the Jews go into any, or, nor eat or converse with any that were uncircumcised. So great an alienation and distance were there between these two people. And much less might they eat the Passover and join with them in religious worship. It did not happen. That's why when the Holy Ghost fell at Pentecost... And they started uh, preaching in tongues, or started speaking in tongues. And then Peter gets up and he preaches, and 3,000 people get saved, and they heard the wonderful works of God in their own language. They were like, oh, what is God doing? And then Peter goes to Cornelius. Peter gets the vision, like we talked about a few weeks ago. Peter gets the vision. Here, here Peter, don't call that common. Eat, eat, eat what's in front of you there. Well, why is that? Why did that matter? See, that was really a secondary issue. The food was. It really was. To the Jews, that was the first issue. To God, that was a secondary issue. Well, why, why does that matter? Well, if you're going to go witness to that guy, you're going to go into his house and he's going to offer food to you. And if you don't eat that guy's food, that ain't going to go too well. You're bringing them the glorious gospel of God and then you're saying, but you guys are scum. I ain't eating with you. That won't work out well. <laughs> right? <laughs> but the first thing was the gospel given to the heathen. That's what he was showing him. You go into that guy's house and you go preach to that. Wait, you want me to sit down at that table with that Gentile? That, that Cornelius, right? He's an Italian band, right? He's a, you're going to go, you want to go eat with him? He's going to make a spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> They got sausage in them, Lord. <laughs> Big old meatballs. <laughs> right? He's going to have to go eat with that guy. Do you see? Do you see how this was like a turn of events? That So now you see why he's saying this to them in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's saying, this is what you were. Oh, you all didn't even go in the same room together. You wouldn't even talk to each other. Remember, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Right? So all of this is culminating, and he's saying, you guys wouldn't even be able to be in the same room together. You couldn't observe the Passover. You didn't eat together. You didn't, now, God saved both of you, and you're all, you both got the Holy Ghost, and you're all in one body here, and you're all showing up to worship, and you're, and you're having communion. You're having the Lord's Supper, which is a picture of his death. And you're doing that together. That's God that destroyed the amenity, right? He, he just, he destroyed it by the gospel. When the, when the veil of that temple was rent, when that was rent, that was God opening up the way to the Holy of Holies. Jesus Christ opened that way up. Amen. Straight to the throne of God and said, by faith, you can go straight to the throne of God. You just have to understand the, the magnitude of what was going on there. And we don't. We just read it real fast. And, oh, Ephesians, yep, Paul saying Jew, Gentile, circumcised. 
blah, 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 blah. That's kind of what we do. And then we just go through it. And we, we don't get the significance. Why? Because it doesn't have that effect on you. You're not a Jew and you're not living over there in the time. And you weren't a Gentile at the time around that, how they had no dealings like that together. But this is what Paul is explaining to them. He's explaining what they were. And then he's going to say, but now you're all together. <laughs> You see, the Jews practiced what we Baptists practice in the New Testament, closed communion. <laughs> they didn't let anybody in. <laughs> you ain't coming in here. They, they made no bones about it. You ain't coming in here. Right? Just like we do when we, we've had, no, we don't have anybody. Why? Because we believe what God said. It's closed unless you're a member, right? Unless you're part of the body. It's such an amazing thing that Paul is reminding them of the alienation that was between them and God and the Jew and the Gentile. It's just another way to explain that separation before they were saved and before the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, came and, and uh, till Jesus came and made the way. Number two, he describes him as being without Christ. Paul describes him in a category most plain, without Christ. That's the world. Before you were saved, you were without Christ. There is no in-between. You are either saved or lost. You are either born again by the Spirit of God or you are dead in sins. Paul covered that already. And he said, you at the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He explained what they were. And now he says, you're, there, you know, there is no in-between. You're either in Christ or you're not. It's that simple. There is no halfway. There, you're either saved or you're lost. Amen. That's how it works. Sometimes in your mind, when you have doubts and fears, you, you think there's like this third category where God's allowing you to float around in like this bubble. No. You either have Christ or you don't. You're either led by the Spirit of God or you are not. Or you are none of His. Right? That's what He said very plainly. See, without Christ means you're going to hell. If you're here and not saved, you're without Christ. You're on your way to hell. By nature, we all deserve it. If you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have Christ and you're not alone and you are not without Christ. But see, they were without any knowledge of him, any faith in him, any love to him, any communion with him, any subjection to him, his gospel, his government, his laws, his ordinance, and particularly they were without any promise of Christ or prophecies concerning him, which were peculiar to the Jews. That's why they called him the Messiah. They, they didn't have... Now, God would do a work with the Gent Jesus would do a work with the Gentiles, right? He was going to come and be the savior of the world, right? Jews didn't understand that, but he was first sent to the lost sheep, the sheep of the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right? He said that very plainly. But afterwards, he told them, when I rise from the dead, I send up to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Ghost. Wait until you receive power from on high because you're going to need it. <laughs> That's why you're going to need it. See, I don't have to wait now for power on high. I've already received it by salvation, right? And, and by the sword of the Spirit, right? We have it. We have the power. We're not waiting for it. There's people that, the Pentecostals, they have these meetings like, well, we're going to wait for us to have another Pentecost. You don't need another one. Why would I need another one? God did it right the first time. Why would he have to do it twice? 
It's like Jesus. Jesus said, uh, God said he ain't going to send his son the second time to, to die for sins. That's right. Once and for all. That's it. Once and for all. He came, he came the first time as the lamb slain, right? The second time, he's coming back as the lamb roaring. He's coming back with vengeance. Taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you expect he's going to come back and lick some hands, he ain't doing that. He's going to come down and burn it all down. They're going to get their global warming, all of them. Amen. The little antichrist system they want. They're going to get it. You want to get hot? It's going to get hot. He's going to come and he's going to burn it all. It. He is going to burn it all. All their world systems, all their governments, everything. He's going to burn it down. Amen. He's going to destroy it all. Amen. Except his beloved. His own. That's right. He's going he's gonna to save them. He's going to protect them. He's going to give them. The meek shall inherit the earth. The JW's got that right, by the way, when they say that, that part of it. They're not right about theologically about mostly everything they say. But what they say about that is it's true. New Jerusalem is going to come down from heaven, and we, the meek are going to inherit the earth. It'll all be ours <laughs> by inheritance. Because our big brother, <laughs> we have our inheritance through Christ. Yeah. So it's happening. That's gonna, all of this is going to be ours one day. <laughs> well, not this, but <laughs> what he does with it, amen, when he makes all things new. That's, that's what we have to look forward to, amen. Paul says, not only were they not Christians, but had no knowledge of Christ or the Messiah, no title to the blessings which were to proceed from him. At that time, while you were Gentiles in an unconverted state, you were one in a Christless condition, without the knowledge of the Messiah, without any saving interest in him or relation to him. It is true of all unconverted sinners, all those who are destitute of faith, that they have no saving interest in Christ, and it must be a sad and deplorable thing for a soul to be without a Christ. Amen. Without Christ. To be without Christ is to be without salvation, for he alone is the Savior. To be without Christ is to be outside of God's kingdom, for Christ is the head of that kingdom. What a terrible place to be without Christ. Aliens and foreign to every promise of God. What a sad place to be to be shut out from the covenants and the promises of God. Without Christ, who is the fountainhead of all good and the only way to God. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. That's why we make much about Jesus. That's why when I hear these, these fools out there like Alex Jones and all these other guys are out there and Tucker Carlson, like I, I talked about that interview today and, and went through that, and they're all occultic and they all got their own mystified garbage and they speak against this book when they do and they're offering people another way and they're deceivers and liars and they have to be exposed for what they are. Because they're offering something opposite of what God is. Like, we're going to defeat the new world order. No, Christ is going to defeat them. <laughs> we ain't going to do nothing. <laughs> we're here to occupy till he comes. That's what we're here. Till Jesus comes, we work. Right? We'll work till Jesus comes, right? And then we're going home. And that's, that's, just, that's just the truth. You ain't going to defeat nothing. 
you know, standing around with a bunch of transgenders. You're going to beat the New World Order. You're going to beat the Antichrist. No, you're enjoying them. You'll be cutting our heads off if you get a chance. Make no mistake about it. They'll be cutting your head off. All these people acting like virtue signal and act like they're all this. They'll be cutting your head off in a minute. They'll join. You, you think, how do you think a man gets to be a billionaire? You think these, you think these people that are billionaires out there? You think, yeah. You, yeah. You think these billionaires out there, you think they're God-fearing people? No, they have a God complex. They want to be God. They think they're God. They think they're God. That's what they think. But their whole system is going to crumble when Jesus comes. Yep. Without Christ is a most doleful place, a terrible place to be. Number three, they're described without hope. Why? Because they're without Christ. Every man is without hope that is without Christ. He doesn't have any hope, no real lasting hope. He might have what the, the world calls hope, but not, not biblical hope. See, did you know there's a difference? People in this world, they say things like, well, I hope that'll be the way. I hope that'll happen. Well, when I talk about hope from a scriptural standpoint, it's a guaranteed thing. It's not like, oh, I hope it's going to turn out that way. No, 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 no. The scriptural hope means it is. It is. And I have a sure and steadfast hope. Right? It's a sure thing. It will happen. But we're waiting for it to happen. That's what hope means. It means by faith we grasp hold of the promises of God and hope we hold on to that hope. It's sure. Right? It's a sure, steadfast thing. That's right, it does. That is where it comes from. That's the only place it comes from. That's what I've tried to explain to people about that. Is you're, you're looking for hope in all the wrong places. Amen. It's right there. My hope is in the book. Amen. It tells me how to have it. What verse were you talking about, Paul? I got a little note. Yeah, because I know I, uh, the God of hope, and, and there's some verses in the scriptures that deal with that how we have hope and how you can encourage other people and show them. And it's all from God's word. Amen. You won't get it anywhere else. It's, it, it's, it's not, it's fleeting. Everything this earth offers you is fleeting. It will look, if I make you a promise, I could drop dead tomorrow. I can't fulfill that. My promises aren't God's promises. I mean, I want to, right? I want to do it. I mean, I, I, I might want to do that. But you know what? Circumstances could change tomorrow. I could say, I'd give you a thousand bucks tomorrow. But guess what? I go in and somebody hacked my account and took everything I have. I can't give you a thousand bucks. But you promise, I know, but my promises are only as good as the abilities that I have to do that. But guess what? God, God isn't limited by anything. So the hope that we have from the word of God is a sure foundation. It's sure. It'll, it'll never, nothing will ever get in the way of God fulfilling his promises in hope of eternal life, Amen. which God hath promised since the world began. Yeah. <laughs> right. It is an eternal hope. I don't stand here tonight before you with a temporal hope that goes away at death, that death ends my hope. No, death is the beginning of it. <laughs> hope turns to sight, and I don't need hope any longer, right? Faith, hope, and charity, right? The greatest of these is charity. Why? Because once I see Jesus, I don't need faith and hope anymore. That's right. 
But charity is God, and that's love, and God is love, and it ain't never going to end. You see how that works? That's why he says faith, hope, and charity, right? That's why he talks about those two things. He says the greatest of these is charity. Because charity never ends. It is endless. God's charity, God's charity, different than man's love and everything else, charity is of God. It can only be done between Christians, too, by the way. God, it can't, the world is not charitable. They're not charitable. God's people are charitable. They're the only ones that can be. Because they were given it by God. You understand that? We are different than the world. Because we have something that God gave us that they don't have. And they can never have. They do all this philanthropy and all that. No, no, no. It, it, it's not. It isn't what God does. It's all man-centered, man and it's all pompous, and it, it ends in pride and arrogancy. But it, and it ends in hell, most of it. Because like, like Paul calls them one-world do-gooders, that's who they are. They're just one-world do-gooders is all they are. They're not, they don't have charity. They, no, they don't have the blood. That's right. They, they, they're, not, they're not us. They, they can never be until they're saved. They can be born again. Amen. It is eternal hope. It is a sure hope, a steadfast hope. And it transcends any doubts and fears that creep into the mind and heart. It transcends all temporal circumstances. It rises above all tyranny and all governments of the world and all things that would cloud a man's mind, his heart inward or outward trials and struggles. This hope of the ages, it transcends all those things. Christ gives an eternal hope. Christ is the eternal hope. He is. His person, his office, his sacrifice, his resurrection. Praise his name. He is the hope of all the ages. You better be seeking it in that book or you're not going to find it anywhere else. You won't. You can't. They had no covenant hope, these people. They had no hope of a Messiah, no salvation by him, no future state of eternal life. Such as are the Christless. They must be hopeless. Such as are without faith must needs be without hope. And such as are without the promise must necessarily be without faith. For the promise is the ground of faith and faith is the ground of hope. Amen. It is a miserable state to be without hope. If in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. If I have everything staked in this life, then when circumstances come in this life and destroy, it'll destroy my hope. But if my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, it does not, it, it will not shake me. It will not move me. It will not take me away. None of these things move me because they're all temporal. But my hope is not temporal. My hope is eternal. That's what you have to understand. You've got to get that down. That's what Paul is saying. They didn't have that, and they needed it. The future to the heathen was nigh without a, night without a star. In the Roman catacombs, hope is the most commonest inscription. Down there were the, in the catacombs of, the, of those that were being murdered for the faith, what did they talk about? Hope. Why? They weren't thinking, oh, my life's going to be spared. No, no, no. They were like, I'm going home. My real hope is home. I'm going home. They're going to cut my head off, but I'm going home. Why do you think those martyrs could look at them and be like, yep. They say, you need to renounce Jesus or we're going to kill you. Like, you're going to kill me anyway. Go ahead. We're going we're gonna to torture you. Yeah, I know you are. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not recanting Jesus. Right? Make a dotted line right here. Cut it clean across. Hurry up, will you? 
They tortured him, tried to get him to change, tried to get him to recant, tried to get him, put him on a stretching rack, tortured him, everything else. They didn't even, they. Right, because they were ready to go. They're like, well, let's get this over with. Said people, and they, they kind of mocked him and said, they had this mad rush and, and desire for death. No, they had a mad rush to see Jesus because they knew they weren't getting out of there. They're walking up into that place and they're in that Colosseum and lions are going to come up out of the ground and eat them, right? So he's like, well, I might as well go first and get it over because I don't want to watch it happen to them. <laughs> I don't want to watch my brother die. Just go ahead and kill me first and get it over with. Because lions are going to come up and eat them and all these, and they were in the Colosseum. They come up right out of the ground. They had it. You're going to, when you see this video, this documentary, you, you'll understand what they did in that place, man. It was just unreal. There's some vicious people, man. And they're, they're here on this earth now. Same vicious spirit. They'd do it right now. You don't think this U.S. government will do it? Oh, they want it so bad. You better believe they do. And if my hope is in just this life alone, I'm, I'm going to be most sorrowful. But it can't be. We can't do that. It is a miserable state to be without hope. Step by step descending into a darker and darker depths. Paul, he's, he's describing the darkest of dark here. St. Paul, he describes the awful condition out of which heathens had been rescued when they became Christians. Regarded from a Jewish point of view, this condition is seen to consist, said one, in the loss of all the high privileges of Israel and the salvation of the Gentiles appears as an adoption into the circle of those privileges. But larger things of more general import are covered by the description. So that applies virtually to all who are outside the pale of the gospel. He says, first, they were Christless. The Gentile world had no Messiah. Worldly interests, business, pleasure, culture have their advantages, but they bring no savior, no physician of a sick soul. As Christ is the foundation stone of the new temple, to be without Christ is to have nothing on which to erect subsequent Christian blessings. If we have the doctrine and the discipline of the New Testament without the Christ, we have nothing of real profit. The dumb, pathetic helplessness of spiritual hunger in the finer inquiring and doubting minds of our day is a proof that to be without the light and life and love of Christ is as great a loss to us as it was to any in old times. So they were, they were Christless people. They were churchless people. They were alienated, right? Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The church is now what Israel was in pro-Christian times, the home and the family of the people of God picture we're not replacing them we understand we're not in 12 tribes we ain't all figuring out how many what tribe you're from any of that no we're the lord jesus christ church we get it but when you're looking for the family of god today you're going to find it in the local new testament church right when you're looking for the saved when you're looking for that that's where you find them in the old testament you found them in israel didn't you that's where you found them not the same thing god did something different with his church didn't he absolutely we got our theology straight we get that they were unevangelized, strangers from the covenants of promise. The Jew had a gospel in his messianic prophecy. The Christian has his in the New Testament history. What covenant is there in science? What promise is there in art? What gospel in commerce, in business? We may discover laws and heirs of the universe and create works and skills and beauty and accumulate treasure of wealth, but still stricken souls cry out, is there no balm in Gilead? For all this brings no peace to the weary and the brokenhearted. 
Like you go out there and chase money. You're going to find God in commerce and business. You're going to go, you're going to go worship a God of commerce and business, worship a God in art, worship a God in the creation and all that, but not the God of the creation, by the way. You turn creation into a God who worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, right? That's what Romans says. They were unevangelized. Next, they were pessimists, having no hope. Pagan Rome and Greece were verging towards pessimism in the days of Paul. When philosophers advised suicide and historians taught contempt of mankind, they said there's too many people. That's what the Greeks said. The Greeks said that. They said, uh, Plato said that. He said, there's too many people. We ought to start killing these Greeks. He said that. They ought to start killing them. Why? Oh, there's too many. Population control. Plus, we need to weed out the gene pool and make some cleaner children. Make some better offspring. Eugenesis. Nothing's changed. Still the same old devils they always were, right? Still haters of God, talking men and advising suicide, historians teaching uh, contempt of mankind. Pagan Europe now manifests the same tendency. Culture fails to convert the Philistine. Science dwarfs humanity before nature and discovers no soul and no heaven. What does science tell you? The scientists of the day, falsely so-called, what do they tell you? There is no soul. There is no heaven. There is no God. Business, politics, and society drive man to a weariness that sees no rest. This is what Paul is saying to them. And lastly, as they keep degrading downward, he says they're atheistic. What does that mean? No God. No God in the world. Speculative atheism is rare if it, ever, if it ever exists. Practical atheism is more common and more disastrous, said one. It is, a, it is worse to believe in God and to live as if there were no God than to doubt his existence. So many people, they name the name of God, but they live like there isn't one. They call themselves Christians, like Alex Jones calls himself a Christian. Tucker Carlson calls himself a Christian while, while, while Alex Jones is standing across from a tranny and saying to that, that guy, no, you really are a woman. I'm like, he's telling this tranny that he's a woman. I mean, when I look at you, I see a woman. I'm like, I think you need your looker fix, buddy. But that's what, but that's what he said. And, he, and he's like saying that, that, you know, your bones and everything, yeah, you're really a woman. He said, do you think this happened the same way they turned the frogs gay? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> he said, yeah, I think so, maybe. That's probably, yeah. It was fluoride. That's a lot of fluoride, man. <laughs> I think I'd rather lose all my teeth than have that. That that thing that thing said uh, that tranny said on that on that video they said uh, and by the way Alex Jones is, is talking about how much of a Christian he is how much he's against the New World Order then I showed another video of him uh, gushing over this transgender saying this transgender was his friend and oh I hung out with you and went on your show I'm like like who has a friend that's a tranny like a, like a, just a friend that's a tranny. I don't want to know all his friends, but I think I have a pretty good idea who they are. But, but, but he's talking about that, right? What is that? This is degradation of society. They live that the, like there's no God. They live like there's no God to answer to. That's what they do. That's, that's, that's the same as Romans chapter 1. 
He's really what Paul's describing here in Ephesians 2, and what this man is describing here in Paul's words is the same thing. It's just the degradation. It's the downgrade of society. And how does it happen? Well, first you have to deny there's a God. Then once you do that, then it just gets worse from there. You deny his ways, and you ignore him, and you're just going to go down in their knowledge. Right? That's what happened. This is to be without God is not to look for his help nor to obey his will. This is death, since in God we live and move and have our being. Glorious must be the gospel that redeems us from such a depth of ruin. Amen. Having no hope either of the pardon of sin or the resurrection of the body, nor indeed of the immortality of the soul, of all these things the Gentiles had no rational or well-grounded hope. Of the promised Messiah they had no hope, right? 1 John 3, 3, And every man that hath this hope, what hope? This hope. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. See, the hope of all the ages, when it is in you, when you are saved and born again, it purifies you. It, it just does. No, you're not perfect on this side, but boy, you sure are going to know it when you're not. And it's going to bother you. God's going to convict you. And over time, God's going to continue to grow you. That's the promise of God. That's the work that He does. Right? He continues to do that work until we'll perform it until the day of Christ. Another verse that talks about that, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 talks about this hope that we have and that they didn't have and that none of us had before we were saved. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. That's God's promise. That's where your hope is anchored, in God's promise. That's why it's sure. That's why it's a sure hope. Colossians 1.27, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Wherein do I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. See, these, they had no hope. Those outside of Christ, they have no hope of salvation because there is no other way of salvation, no other possibility. No hope means zero hope. Any hope that the unbeliever has is a false hope, a delusion, and a lie of the devil if it is not on Christ. The apostle does not mean to affirm that they did not cherish any hope, right? For this is scarcely true of any man, but that they were without any proper ground of hope. See, there's a lot of men that live in hope, but they have no proper grounding for it. Our grounding for it is this book and the promises of God. Theirs are fleeting hopes, not real. But the ground on which they do this is not well understood by themselves, nor do they in general regard it as a matter worth particular inquiry. Some rely on morality. 
some on forms of religion, some on the doctrine of universal salvation. All who are impenitent believe that they do not deserve eternal death, and they expect to be saved by justice. No, justice. You don't want what you, de what you deserve. You want mercy. Right? Jesus took what I deserve. He paid for what... He, he paid for my sins. He took what I deserve. You really that bad? Oh, yeah. And then some. <laughs> and then some, amen. But Christ died the just for the unjust. That's... We ask for mercy. We don't ask for what we deserve. You might think in your life, in your heart, sometimes, well, I don't deserve this. No, you deserve a lot worse than this. When you ever start feeling a pity party and feeling sorry for yourself, and you think, well, I don't deserve this type of treatment, you should remember that you deserve a lot worse than this. That doesn't mean it excuses wrongdoing that people do towards you. But you better understand and realize that God's been way better than you than you deserve. Amen. He's been way better to me than I deserve. I deserve a lot worse. Absolutely a lot worse. <laughs> I got mercy. I didn't get what I deserved. Right. Amen. So the trials that you're going through right now and the hardships and the things that you're going through right now, you think, well, I don't deserve this. Yeah, I know. You deserve a lot worse than this. But mercy, in God's mercy, He hasn't given you what you deserve. And you better thank Him for it, too. <laughs> Amen. Lastly, they were, they were without God. Without God in the world. They had God's many and Lord's many, but in no Gentile nation was the true God known and served, nor indeed had they any correct notion of the divine nature. Their idols were by nature no gods. They could neither do evil nor good, and therefore they were properly without God, having no true object of worship and no source of comfort. He who has neither God nor Christ is in a most deplorable state. He has neither a God to worship nor a Christ to justify him. And this is the state of every man who is living without the grace of the Spirit of Christ. All such, whatever they may profess, are no better than practical atheists. Without the knowledge of God in Christ, without the image of God, which was defaced by sin, without the grace and the fear of God, and without communion with Him, and the worship of Him, and while they were so, they were in the world among the men of it, and were a part of it, not being yet called out of it, the world, the word signifies that they were without God. So some of the Gentiles were in theory, as they all were in practice. They were by the Jews reckoned no other than atheists, heathens. What is atheism but a life without hope? A life without God is practical atheism. They were in a state of distance and estrangement from God, without God in the world, not without some general knowledge of a deity, because they worshiped a ton of idols, but living without any due regard to God, any acknowledged dependence on Him, any special interest in Him. The words are, are, the words are like this, that they are atheists in the world. They worship many gods. This is their miserable condition. What an expression to be without God. Without God in his own world that he created. 
to have no evidence of his favor, no assurance of his love, no hope of dwelling with him. That's what the pagan Ephesians were like before they were saved. They had no knowledge of the true God. This was, the true, this was true of the pagan and important sense also it is true of all impenitent sinners and once true of all who are now Christians, that we had no God that we worshiped. They did not worship him or love him or serve him or seek his favor. They did not act with reverence to him in his glory. Nothing can be a more appropriate and striking description of a sinner than to say that he is without God in the world. Like he lives his life, he operates without God. Before you were saved, you operated without God. Now, God was still caring for you. God was still allowing you to eat and breathe his air and do all those other things. In the natural courses of how God set up the world, he was still had mercy upon you to feed you and to clothe you and to keep breath in your lungs. Amen. That's why lost people owe God. You know what? Lost people owe God everything too. You understand that, right? I think, yeah, sure they do. All these rich people, sure they do. They owe God everything. Why wouldn't they? He gave them all. He allowed them to have it all. Died for them. They owe them everything. Even though they're not saved, they owe them everything. That's why the, the Old Testament verse talks about the, the, the uh, what is it? The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. Why is that? Because they owe God too. Amen. Right? See, he lives, he feels, he acts as if there is no God. He neither worships him in secret, nor in his family, nor in public. He acts with no reference to God's will. He puts no confidence in God's promises and fears not when he threatens. And were it announced to him that there is no God, it would produce no change in his plan of life or in his emotions. Wouldn't care. The announcement that the emperor of China or the king of Siam or a sultan or was dead would produce some emotions that might change some of his commercial arrangements, right? But the amount, announcement that there is no God would, wouldn't interfere at all with his plans. People go on. That's how you know if somebody's not a Christian. They don't care what happens with God. They don't care about God's book. They don't care about this Christian life. They can name the name of Christ and say all they want to, but if they don't care about God and they don't care what happens and they live their lives opposite of what God says and don't care about it, that's because they're not his. They live like there's no God. You see them all the time, right? We see them on the street and we're preaching. They live like there's no God. They don't care. And if so, says one, what is man in this beautiful world without a God? A traveler to eternity without a God, standing over the grave without a God, an immortal being without a God. You gotta live on one place, heaven or hell. A man fallen, sunk, ruined, with no God to praise, to love, to confide in, with no altar, no sacrifice, no worship, no hope, with no father in his trial, no counselor in perplexity, no support in death. Such is the state of man by nature, such are the effects of sin. This is the sad state of affairs of the Ephesians before their conversion. But oh, happy day when a man or a woman or a child is saved out of that wretched life. Amen. When God saves them and he becomes their God and he seals them under the day of redemption, when they come in faith, they repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You look at that verse. I don't want to leave you without any hope there. So let's go to, let's read the last verse there in verse 13 there. Uh, the great contrast, right?
He says in verse 12, he says that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, Amen. who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Amen. There you go. That's the gospel, isn't it? And that's, and that's what Paul's going to get. He, he gave them all the bad news of what they were before, and now he's about ready to tell them what the good news is. In 13 through 17, he's going to explain to them here the good news, and we'll get to that next week. Amen? But he's going to explain to them, this is who you were. This is who you are now. This is what God did, whether you're Jew or Gentile. In this body in Ephesus, he's saying Jew or Gentile, you're all saved by the same spirit. You're all saved by the same gospel. And, you're, and the, that enmity that was between you is over. It's done away with. And God has made you whole. That's the new man. What's the new man he's talking about? The body of Christ. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the body, that you're together in one body. Tell you, when, when you start to look at it on this fashion, you'll start to, you start to understand the magnitude of what Paul is really preaching here. The more you break it down and you understand that there's Jews and Gentiles, they're sitting together for the first time ever. And now Paul's saying, now you're all one. And this is how it happened. They knew that they were saved by grace, right? You understand that, right? Because he said, you at the quickened who are dead. They knew that they heard the gospel. They were lost heathens. These Gentiles, they heard the gospel and they were saved. The Jews uh, heard the gospel. They were saved. But they didn't think about, well, what do we do now? Paul says, that's what this church is. It's, the enmity is destroyed now. It's over. Christ, he demolished it. It's over. There's no more enmity. Now you're all one body. Jew and Gentile alike, all in one church. God's promise fulfilled. That's what he's explaining to them. Amen. Father, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for eternal life through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope of all the ages. Thank you for the hope that we find in the Word of God. And thank you for the hope we find in all your promises, Lord, that you gave us, that you continue to bestow upon us. Lord, help us to reach others with the gospel. Help us to be faithful in all that we do. Help us to witness the lost. Help us to, help us to live it in our lives. Help us never live our lives like there's not a God in this world, like there's not a God that we answer to, that saved us and gave his only begotten son to die for our sins and be buried and rise again from the dead. Thank you for that resurrection victory. Bless us as we go. Bring us back safely. Meet all of our needs. Help us to love you more and more and one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.